Welcome to Loading Dark Talks, where all the juiciest conversations happen. I'm Chef Prithi Mystery, and every episode I talk to my favorite food folks about their lives, food, and social justice, and we do a little shit talking too. When I look at the roster of everyone I've interviewed um, for this first season of Loading Doc Talks, I see like all of these amazing different leaders in the food industry and movement. Um, They're all agents of change. They're all working in different ways that have some intersections and connections So there's intersections, and yet we all occupy really different spaces. And some of the folks that I've talked to are, you know, some a little bit older than me. Some are my age, and and some are millennials. About, you know, a decade or so younger. And the one thing I see in this amazingly large and complex generation. (laughs) I love you, millennials. I swear. (laughs) At least in in, in the the ones that I know, the ones that, the, the folks that I've interviewed on the podcast, this sort of real drive around wanting to make change in the world and make an impact. For myself, when I left the world of queer film, which to me was very passionate and meaningful and impactful, and that was a clear line that I saw, you know, representation matters and these stories need to be told. I, when I went into cooking, I didn't really think there was a clear line. What I see in a lot of the younger generation of chefs like Mavis J, my guest this week, is that they seem to have a more clear idea even as they're going into culinary school and working at some of these top restaurants of where they're headed. And that place is doing something that makes an impact and something that has purpose. So when I started my career in cooking, I was really just focused on the cooking and um, I wasn't really sure where that was going to lead me. I definitely didn't know it would lead me to to here and and being such an outspoken um a controversial figure. <laughs> but what I admire about this younger generation and maybe it's just what they've been through, right? I mean, I got to have this sort of dreamy, you know, period where we were all kind of thought everything was okay called the 90s. Um, and so it wasn't until I was way into my twenties and thirties did that sort of fantasy come crashing down and reality of what this world is really made of, um, (laughs) really hit me. And I think that would coincide largely with a lot of things from 9-11 to a couple recessions, et cetera. And now the pandemic 
And one thing I really admire about Mavis J is their dedication and clear focus of going to the top school, working at the top places to get the, basically what, you know, we all know we all need, right? You can all say that somebody could, you know, cook their butt off and be an amazing chef. But we also know that if you say they went to blank school, you know, people are going to be see them differently. There's this validation piece, right? So, you know, just same as myself. I mean, you know, part of me makes fun of the James Beard Foundation and how biased their awards have been, but I don't stop putting in my bio that I've been twice nominated. I mean, it's it means something to larger society and the status quo when you're given that type of validation. What I love is what Mavis J seems clear on is now I'm going to take all of that equity that I've earned and use it for good. The thing that's been really impressive through the pandemic is seeing how many young people, whether they're in leadership positions like Mavis J, or they are, um, you know, just hourly cooks and servers, that, that folks have taken up activism even if it wasn't as much a part of their lives before in this industry. It didn't start with the pandemic. It's been a growing movement in our industry, I think, for at least the last three or four years. I mean, if I'm sure it was growing before this, but I would say, if anything, Me Too really ignited a lot of change makers because not only did they see how awful these experiences were for people in their industry, but they started to recognize these patterns in their own work history. There's a disaffection with the status quo and one thing that makes me really hopeful for this industry is folks like Mavis J, who are in positions of leadership and they have the knowledge and the skills to back it up. And they're ready to go to work, not just to enrich themselves and get more popular, get more followers, but to make real change in this world and to use their intelligence and their opportunities that they've created for themselves to do something good for others and not just themselves. My guest today is Chef Mavis J. Sanders. They are a celebrated chef and director of culinary development and education at Drive Change in Brooklyn. I guess at five years old, I'm living in Texas because my parents are in the military. Okay. When I think of, <laughs> can I tell you this? The one food memory I do have of being in Texas is mm-hmm. like my mom being gone, my dad trying to feed me breakfast and making me try to make me eat cream of wheat. 
And I was never into hot cereal. Mm-hmm. Like, you give me with grits, but, like, for breakfast, like, grits for me was, like, a dinner thing. But, like, in the morning, like, an oatmeal or something like that, I was never interested yeah. in it, honestly. Like, it's, don't give it to me, man in the hat. And my dad, for some reason, was like, today's the day. You're going to do cream of wheat. And I was like, no, I'm good. Like, I really don't want this. Please don't, you know? And he I was like, you know, let me get uh-huh. some Fruit Loop, something else. And he sat me down with a bowl of cream of wheat. And he was like, you can't get up until you eat it. I sat there the entire day, the entirety of the day. And eventually my mom came home and was like, what is going on? And I was like, he said I can't get up. What's happening here? Until this is gone and <laughs> I'm not doing it. And she was just like, go to bed, just go to bed. And I was like, score. When like, I can't do it. Mm-mm. My dad's a hunter. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the farmer, he's a hunter. Okay. And I grew up eating venison sausage and it had been so long mm-hmm. and it was just like the smell. That's a smell that was like always like in my grandparents' mm-hmm. house and everything like that. Like you could, you could still smell it like later in the afternoon that it had been cooked. And like, mm-hmm. like you kind of like go in the house hoping that there's like still a piece left when you can still smell it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And my dad like sent me a cooler. I was talking to him about how I missed it and he sent me mm-hmm. a cooler. Like he like legit bought me a Yeti. And he, like, filled it with, like, <laughs> wild-caught salmon, because he goes fishing in Alaska. And then, like, uh-huh. venison sausage. And then, like, filled peas. Like, things, like, I was never going to get being in New York that are, like, pieces of home. And I hadn't been able to go home yeah. because of the pandemic. And I just, like, was, like, sobbing. Mm-hmm. Just, like, sitting in the middle of the hallway sobbing. Mm. But I, I love that sausage. Like, it's everything. So, I'm just curious, like, the cream of wheat was something. Was that just a very specific thing or were there other things that you really didn't like when you were a kid that maybe you even like now i mean it seems like cream of wheat we both agree we're we're just leaving that where it is yeah right i think um for me i definitely was one of those (laughs) this might be (laughs) embarrassing i was definitely one of those younger people who like who were like i don't want my things to touch but i want to be able to mix them as i see fit it mm. wasn't that I never wanted them to like, I wasn't going to co-mix them, but mm-hmm. I wanted to be the architect of how they mixed. So a chef in the making, obviously. <laughs> yeah, very particularly, like I'm very like the perfect bite. I've always been very finicky like that. I think the only things that I didn't like, I had a right not to like, and <laughs> I didn't understand why I didn't like them until I was, until I was older. Like my parents cooked some, but most of everything we were eating was like center of the aisle. And we also, like, we were also, like, on the go. And I had two working parents. So we also did, like, a lot of fast food. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I never wanted a tomato on any of, like, the burgers or anything I got. But the texture was horrible. Right. But, like, right, rightfully so. Like, even still now, you know? Like, no. Like, absolutely not. And, like, I thought I didn't like tomatoes until I had a tomato that was, like, a real tomato and was in mm-hmm. season. Right? Mm-hmm. Like... Well, it, that's interesting because I feel like a lot of people grown adults in my life, not just my wife, but friends, et cetera, outside of the food world that'll say, oh, I don't like this or I don't like that. Mm-hmm. And I'll be like, are you sure? Right. And I sure. really rejoice in cooking something for them and having them enjoy it where they're like, oh, my God, I didn't think I liked beets because their only connection to beets was this mushy canned situation. But I roast some beets and put it in a salad with some, you know, oranges and red onions and chicories. And they're like, oh, this is delicious. Yeah. Um, and I'm, and and so a lot of that is just like these like things that we've decided we don't like because we didn't have such a great version of them. 
I'm not gonna lie to you. I used to. I grew up. I loved canned beets. I would eat them straight out of the can. <laughs> <laughs> like canned corn. Like uh, like that was what they used to do. I used to do um, like cream cream corn and peas. Mm-hmm. Canned peas. I used to mix them together and just like salt and pepper and like eat them straight, just like that. I'm legit talking like under the age of ten. Like this is like me cooking, like making for myself. So you're always cooking for yourself. If we're gonna call that cooking, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Totally. Totally, because I feel like, you know, like I used to do little things like heat up soup and add more spices and things mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. it. I look back at that and I'm like, oh, I totally was like trying to make this thing better yeah. in some way. And yes, I think that for when you're like 12 years old, you're nine years old, that is totally cooking. Yeah, absolutely. Then then yes. My parents, um, like I was saying, they both worked. So it was like one of those things where you get home, like you take the bus or whatever, you know. A lot of, like, microwaved hot pockets and, like, trying to figure that out. A lot of grilled cheese. A lot of blue box, you know, mac and cheese. Mm-hmm. That was definitely something that I was always trying to, like, make it a little bit better. You know, like, put some extra, extra, extra butter in it, you know? What did you put in the craft blue box? I'm curious. <laughs> Whatever I could find. Like, we had, like, basic things around. I feel like you could find in any household. Like, Laurie's, often hot sauce. Uh, <laughs> um, garlic onion like whatever else mm-hmm. it was you know what i mean paprika like just whatever mm-hmm. those basic seasonings that were around i was just like oh yeah it's fancy now you know mm-hmm. <laughs> i have yeah. been called a monster for this what did you do but i i put tabasco and ketchup in my blue box craft mm. that is how i eat it Ooh, still now yeah, the way we make it is it's made, and then Anne takes her half out, <laughs> and then I add ketchup and Tabasco, yeah. and zoo. That's interesting, because I feel like at this point, you're, like, making, it's, like, it's not mac and cheese anymore. You've, like, added this, like, tomato situation. <laughs> you're telling you're, me that's not mac and cheese I'm anymore? I'm just saying, like, I don't know. Does that, like, become some kind of, like, pasta dish? Like, you know what I mean? We've gone, we've taken it to another level. It's, like, for me, like, if you put a piece of ham... On a grilled cheese, it's not a grilled cheese anymore. It's a ham and cheese. Like ketchup is a sauce, right? You know, like. Is but it- what about like I have this uh, recipe, my tikka masala mac, and that yeah. has tomato paste in it, yeah, but it's a tomato. mac and cheese. It's 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 a mac and cheese, but it has spices and ginger and garlic and tomato paste. Were you calling it a mac and cheese because it's got elbows in it? It's elbows, and it's got a bunch of different cheeses. I also feel like if you took that dish and you called it something completely different. You could totally get away with that because it's like people aren't going to associate, you know what I mean? Like, that's a hot dish. I didn't know what this was. Somebody explained this to me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I grew up in the Midwest, so yes. So you know what it is. I was like, I was like. Yeah. You're saying it's a hot dish. You're calling it a hot dish. Yeah. Except tikka masala mac and cheese kind of sells a little bit better in California. Absolutely. Okay. So beyond the sort of like what I call like doctoring things up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) When did you decide like, okay, here's a recipe. I'm going to cook this thing. Oh, I'm going to say for me, like I was familiar in the kitchen just because my grandmother had me in the kitchen with her baking. Okay. But very verbal. It wasn't like me reading recipes. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like I had my Mm -hmm. stool, I had my apron and I was there and I was separating eggs. You know what I mean? So I think other than that, the first thing I ever like was like, all right, cool. We are on a mission to cook was -hmm. like a recipe out of food and wine. And it was like herbs de Provence, chicken, roast chicken with like risotto and asparagus Mm -hmm. and i was probably like 17 well let's back up a little so you were in texas and then 
do you guys move to Georgia? Or did you, you said your parents were in the military, so are yeah. you moving all over the place? Yeah, we did Texas and then Alaska, and then we did mm-hmm. go to Georgia for a little bit, and then I went to high school in Italy, and then we moved back to Georgia to go to college. So that was like my, my, I don't know, my map of where we, where we went. I didn't cook a lot in high school, but I was also like very busy. Like I wasn't like at home hanging out. I go to school and then I had like, you know, whatever sports practice. And then after that, I would go to um, go to the church and I would play the drums for like choir rehearsal. And then I'd be home like trying to figure out whatever homework AP classes or whatever until the midnight and then, you know, do it all over again. My parents kept me busy. I kept busy because it was very mm-hmm. weird growing up in like a military base that's like overseas. It can be a little bit different. Yeah. Where were you going to school? Is it like an American school mm-hmm. or? Yeah, I went to the school that was actually on a military base. It was like 250 kids in the mm-hmm. high school. Maybe like six of us were black. Wow. <laughs> um, like I remember like my junior year, there like another black girl moved into my grade and it was like, oh, hey. Hi. Cool. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. There's like, two of us. <laughs> we were like de facto friends. I don't know that we necessarily got along that long, but we were just like, we are going to hang out. So Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel like because of your queerness and also just moving around so much, that combination sort of brought you to a place where like you you really relying on yourself and then your family uh support yeah for sure (laughs) um and i think that it's different too because like my queerness was odd because like i grew up in a military environment so like it wasn't like that open thing or if i grew up in the south you know a southern Mm -hmm. environment like the college just you know in the early 2000s it still wasn't like sure you might have had like queer eye i think the l word (laughs) might have been out for a couple seasons at that point But, like, you're not seeing a lot of gays. And then I'm not, you know, expressly feminine either, Mm -hmm. right? Like, so I think when I walk into a room confidently, like, I'm automatically an other, you know? Yeah. Do I know? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't know. I also think it's, I kind of like that. Like, I don't know. I like being me. I like not... At this point, you know, I mean, when I was younger, I was probably a little bit more, a little bit harder on myself. But at this point, like, I, I like, like, I think like, it just gives me different opportunities, too. Like, I stand yeah. out a little bit more. It sucks when people want to tokenize you and, like, have you out front just to be like, oh, hey, we have a black person here. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But also, it's just like, I do get a different vantage point sometimes from that. And I get to see and learn and get to be in a different room. And it's like, oh, this is interesting. This is how this works. This is, okay, cool. You get to find the holes and... I don't know, it makes everybody real human all of a sudden. So you're a teen when you start cooking from food and wine, but you, I'm assuming, or I will ask the question, you didn't major in food or culinary arts in college. Am I right? What happened was I actually started off as um, athletic training, like sports mm-hmm. medicine. Mm-hmm. And I like made it to my junior year and I was like, I quit. <laughs> just like that. Just boom. <laughs> yes. I was like, I can't do this anymore. It was so soul sucking. Just, like, being around, like, all those sports bros all the time. Mm -hmm. And it was just, like, weird and, like, really misogynistic. Just really white. Yeah. To be really honest about that, super white, super khakis and polos and tucked in. And I'm like, I'm good. Like, I don't like it. It's not cute. God didn't give me this face to be in khakis all day. And I called my dad. I was like, I'm quitting. Like, I'm dropping out. I'm, like, 
cutting all these courses off. Mm-hmm. He knew that I had wanted to go to culinary school. He was like, I'll give you my GI Bill to go to culinary school if you finish your undergrad. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, come on. So it's an ultimatum. It's like, I'll pay for it. But if you don't finish, whoop, that money goes away. I was like, yeah. And I actually switched my major over to hotel and restaurant management. And it only took me, like, I had to, like, maybe cram, like, a couple more classes in to finish on time. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I ended up finishing on time. When I graduated, I was being promoted to the um, assistant food and bev at a hotel, which was nice. And then I had an mm-hmm. offer from Darden that was, like, join our MIT program and we'll start you off at 60000 And I, sometimes I look back at that and wonder, like, if I had taken that where my life would have gone, you know? <laughs> You'd be, like, culinary director of... Red Lobster, right? Like... Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to add to that cheesy bread, Mavis <laughs> J? What's going to be your imprint? You can't change that cheesy bread. People would kill you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would venture to say you could change just about everything at Red Lobster except for the cheesy bread. That cheesy bread you cannot get rid of. So then you go to culinary school. Mm-hmm. Where'd you go to culinary school, I Mavis did- J? <laughs> I did the CIA up in Poughkeepsie. I did that one. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Fancy. Fancy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if I if the military was going to pay for it. Yeah. Why not go for the best? Okay. What is that experience like? <sighs> It was, it, <laughs> you know, what? I think any kind of culinary education is really about what you put into it. You can get out of mm-hmm. school without ever, like, ever learning anything. I think me being the person that I am and looking the way I look, I think it was very important in order for me to get as far as I have gotten, as fast as I got there, I was mm-hmm. going to have to have that piece of paper. Mm. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, I was going to yeah. have to have, like, I'm not going to sit here and act like, having certain white men say that I am good hasn't helped my career. <laughs> right? Like yeah. I try my best to like leave it off my resumes and stuff like that. But there's certain rooms when I go into, they know that about me and that's all they want to talk about. Mm. You know, is that you've worked for these fancy white male chefs and it's just like cool. And that makes them feel great about having me in the space because it like Mm -hmm. maybe some proximity to them or whatever else that is. But I understand that having worked at those places, having gone to that school gives me a lot of opportunity that I would not have had. It was just like one of these places where you can dream, which I will say about other places. Like Mm -hmm. there's a lot of bureaucracy and there's a lot of bullshit you have to wait through. But if you can get to the point like where you actually can take the space for yourself to dream as big as possible, say Mm -hmm. what you want out loud and find the people who can help you make that come true. It is all Mm. tangible. (laughs) Yes. And I think that's the thing that people lose. People get hurt. Yeah. A thousand percent. Like there's like pieces of us that just get taken away and Mm -hmm. we take advantage of people get exploited a thousand percent. If you can like weary through the storm, what, we don't ever really get to do as brown bodies, as black bodies, because we're always defending off, like just mm-hmm. to be able to like stay alive and always like working out of like a place of crisis is like trying to get to that space where you can just like actually create. And it's the most magical thing because like really like our cultures, they're the most talented of them all. Mm-hmm. Right. Like because like the birth of civilization, everything that has ever been great about culture has come from black and brown communities. Mm-hmm. It's just like. It's already in you. 
you just need to be given the space, the tools, and the resources to make the world a more beautiful place. I 100% I hate, you know, being the only Black person. I hate having to fight with people about my queerness or my Blackness or whatever else that is. Mm -hmm. But I don't need to stay in that spot all the time. I don't need to stay with my trauma. I don't need to stay with the oppression. Like, let's get to a point where, like, we can, like, shed that out the door because I fought to be in this space for Mm -hmm. a very specific reason, and I'm going to get it. It's been... Mm-hmm. 400 years that oppression is not going anywhere tomorrow no it's not so, <laughs> so <laughs> it's not it's not it's not sorry so, to burst your bubble kids <laughs> it's not and that doesn't mean that we shouldn't fight it but that doesn't mean that it right. should take over your life and stop you from being the potential that you have to be In the second segment, Chef Mavis Jay and I talk about transitioning out of cooking and fine dining restaurants into activism and education in the restaurant industry. When I met you, you were an instructor, you were director of operations at BCCC, which is the Brownsville Community Culinary Center or mm-hmm. College? Center. Center. Yep. So for those listening that don't know what the B triple C is, nice. do you guys call it that? The yep. B triple C or B yep. B C squared or cubed? Cubed. 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 Yeah. yeah. B triple C sounds, it just flows better. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about it, but I'm also mostly curious about now knowing about your experience um, of culinary school at Hogwarts, AKA CIA, yeah. Hyde Park. And then being a leader at the BCCC, mm-hmm. the juxtaposition of those two environments and how that felt, uh, what that meant to you, what you sort of gleaned from one experience that helped you when you're on the other side and being a leader and an instructor and teacher and really just like mentor to all of these young people. Essentially, Brownsville, New York is, it's the highest concentration of government housing mm-hmm. in the United States of America. Mm, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's it's wild. Yeah, and really, it, like when you look at like how that could even be formed, it was because you know of um, exploitation, and right, they hadn't had a restaurant in that area, like a sit down restaurant, in fifty years. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so Klaus Meyer was one of the chefs over at Noma, mm-hmm. one of the founders of Noma. And he had, at that point, had come to the U.S. to opening up a bunch of things, the different restaurants. He was in Grand Central. He had like a bake shop, commissary kitchen, mm-hmm. a bunch of stuff. And then he wanted to like open up this culinary space that would give opportunity to people, you know, who had been overlooked. And mm-hmm. <laughs> it was super dope because like they really were able to tap into some of the greatest culinary minds along the diaspora, the African diaspora, to really build like what this space should be and what the curriculum should be like. Dr. Jessica Harris mm-hmm. was like one of the mm-hmm. like formative people in like making sure nice. that that was going to be right. Um, there's a lot mm-hmm. of really amazing chefs making sure that all of the students who were coming through like felt seen and heard and like that their experiences were validated and just trying to navigate you know, how do you go from people telling you that, like, nothing is possible for you to, like, everything is possible for mm-hmm. you? And then 
being in this space for like eight months and like learning how to cook, learning about your heritage, learning about the hair, like the, the history of your food, meeting amazing chefs that were always coming through. So there's all these chefs coming through there. And I'm wondering just for you having that specific experience of going to Hogwarts and now teaching in a school that is, as you said, the largest concentration of housing projects. Mm-hmm. How does that feel? For me, like, I, I didn't just wind up there. Like, I went mm-hmm. there very intentionally, right? Like, I went and worked for all these, like, fancy Michelin star guys and then got fed up of not being able, my family not being able to access the food that I was serving other people. And I was like, how do we change this? You know what I mean? How do we get definitely, like, more people into the, these spaces mm-hmm. that look like us and who have, like, a different background? Mm-hmm and like make their voices heard or give them at least the opportunity to like go for like with a running start right they're amazing to work with you know what i mean and i feel like especially too like you know whenever you get and sure like as an you know owner operator chef you've had these experiences like there are certain mm-hmm. people who come into your space like it's amazing when they're inspired and they're inspiring mm-hmm. you and you get to like have that trade-off of like pushing each other a little bit you know, there's like a yeah. transformation that's happening between both parties. I was super proud. Like not every single person was going to go, you know, to a Michelin star restaurant, but they got jobs, you know what I'm saying? And then we did have people who went to Michelin star restaurants and that's huge. Wow. I'm just curious if you could share a little bit about drive change and also about the work you're doing there. Cause it seems like sort of an extension of B triple C of Brownsville. Drive change has some of the same ideas, like, you know what I mean? Like, there's, you know, it's Emma's Torch, you know, mm-hmm. food and finance, all of those kind of places have, like, this idea of, like, empowering communities, you know, through job mm-hmm. training. Drive change takes it to a whole other level. They're specifically working with people 18 to 25, like, coming out of incarceration mm-hmm. or who have been impacted by the system in some way, right? Mm-hmm. And working with them doing like a lot of work in trauma Mm. to like really make sure they're like well-rounded individuals because there's the problem with the restaurant industry is like often just because like you can keep cooking people aren't paying attention to like what's happening in your head and what's happening in your heart yeah and people burn out that way or where there could have been a moment for you to like really make a difference in somebody's life Mm -hmm. and like lift them up instead like they were tamped down and that has like a long-term effect so drive change does two things right there's the training with the fellows Mm -hmm. and really it's the program is being redesigned right now to really focus on like what the fellows say that they need okay instead of just being like oh we have this program and this is like what you can do it's like hey what do you want to do and like how can we help provide you the resources and opportunity to do so and then the second part of that the difficult part about training people um to go into the restaurant industry is that the restaurant industry is not nice like it's not right yeah (laughs) it's not cute it's not safe (laughs) people think to get jobs there because there's such a like a low barrier for entry most people like either front of house back of house like you know you can yeah you can get your foot in the door somewhere so people like think of it like, cool, sure, everybody can like work in this industry, but it really does take a toll on you. It's very difficult. Yeah. And so the other thing is the hospitality for social justice training. So it's called HSJ. Okay. And it's workshops that are facilitated by our team and trained facilitators. 
people who've been working throughout the industry 20, 30 plus years and sitting down with people who are in restaurants, um, power holders of some sort. So it could be owners. It could be like managers. Sometimes it's people in HR. Some people are like in tech or mm-hmm. other facilities that have to do with food. And they pay to come into this space and learn about how they themselves can have an impact in the places they work around social equity, racial racial equity, and making sure that they're creating safe environments for their employees, like better culture. Mm. Mm. So you're actually training the managers. Which is why it's on a whole other level that like people aren't really paying attention to, right? And it's not like mm-hmm. some cute thing to be like, pay, pay them correctly, right? Like mm-hmm. there's other organizations who are just like, oh, you should pay them better. And that's the whole entire argument for what they're doing. And that's mm-hmm. cool because we need that. So y'all keep doing that. But what right. we're really doing is like sitting down with managers and breaking down like their actual issues that they're having in their restaurant and like how we can t- tackle this from a different issue. So like the first one is really about educating yourself about the history of the uh, restaurants and white supremacy and right. like going in with people. Mm-hmm. And the second workshop is really about like really about like starting to like break that down and like really starting to ask questions and giving the, the people who signed up for the class to um, giving them space to like work through identity mm-hmm. and like what the questions are that they should be asking like in their spaces, which is like yeah. super important. A lot about communication, a lot about identity and like problem solving and equity. I love that because I feel like one of the things I've seen in this industry the most is that literally no one teaches you how to be a manager of people and no one teaches you how to be a leader. It's like you cook really well and now you're the sous chef and now you're responsible for all these other people just because you're, you know, hot shit on saute. And so now you're responsible for all these people, but you, you no one's telling you like how to be responsible for them. Right. They're just like, you're responsible. And so people are left to just figure it out for themselves and their own devices with whatever other experiences they've had in their lives or mimic the type of behavior they see from all of these chefs and folks. And then if we are teaching people like, it sounds like what I'm hearing that Drive Change is doing and what you're doing is really focusing on more than just like, this is how you fill out a, you know, performance review and write a prep list for someone else, but like actually talking about like feelings and empathy and compassion and communication and listening skills and stuff like that. Yeah, I think that when you become a manager, I think that like what you were saying about if you don't know how to do it, you just mimic what Mm -hmm. came before, right? Mm -hmm. Or you mimic how somebody trained you. Same thing with parenting, I feel like. (laughs) That's a whole other podcast. That's that's somebody else's (laughs) podcast. (laughs) Um, But like you you mimic that and there's not a question of like whether or not it's right or wrong because it's just like this is how it's done. Mm -hmm. And has that not plagued us enough in our industry, right? Like, yeah. Like, can we start asking better questions, right? Like, I may have heard somebody say something along the lines of, like, if somebody's not showing up, then the question needs to be, like, do they want to be here? You know, and it's just, like, maybe the question is, what's going on? <laughs> you know what right, I mean? Right, what like, are the barriers? Yeah. What's happening? Like, what? Mm-hmm. not only the barriers, what do you need? Like, do we have mm-hmm. resources to figure out, like, what it is that you need 
one chef I'm like always gonna be a thousand percent like head over heels with how their management style is um Suzanne Cups. <laughs> she was talking to me once and she was like, I had somebody who was always coming in late, so I just changed their hours. And not to be like she cut their hours, she just changed their hours to later in the day. Mm-hmm. And they came in on time. It just makes sense. You value the person, they work well. They do right. like great when they're there. Yeah. If that's the case, like, okay, cool. Like, let's do that. You know what I mean? Like, change the person's hours. It's so difficult for people to wrap their brain around, like, you have the power to change the rules. These rules yeah. were really based on slavery, and you don't actually have to keep doing that. Yeah. Yeah, I, to- I totally agree. And I feel like that's something that I always... This is the way I explain it to the, this is just how things are, chefs. What I say is, would you cook a filet the same way you would cook a short rib? So how do you think that every single person needs to be managed with the same style and tone and that they're going to be motivated by the same things? You need to meet that person where they're at and find out what motivates them. Mm -hmm. And you can't expect to just have one style Mm -hmm. for everyone and then be like, oh, well, you know, no women ever apply for a job here. Oh, people of color never apply for jobs here. Or they leave after a couple of weeks. That's it. And ne- and not ever stop and think like, is there something I'm doing? Or is there something about this environment that isn't retaining a more diverse group of people? And could I be doing more to meet each person where they're at and not just be like, this person doesn't show up on time. They have a problem. That's it. That's wild to me. Like you hit it like straight on, like nail head down in the ground. Like, absolutely. Like it's insane. And it's just, it's like, you have to like ask better questions. And here's the yeah. thing. You have to see people. You have to value mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. and their labor. And yeah. people don't want to do that. And that's right. It's still the whole, we're having this whole tipping issue, right? People mm-hmm. do not have a problem paying $5 for one egg. Right? They they will imagine this story of this mystical farmer and he and his wife and his children and what they do on this farm and how this mm-hmm. egg is so perfect and why it needs to cost $5. But the person who was cooking the egg, right? Like the person who's cooking the egg, why should I have to pay them to cook the egg? That's the issue, right? It's like, it's like they don't want to pay for the labor. And the issue is that, honestly, mm-hmm. here we go. I'm going to go there. <laughs> the issue is that like... The people who are doing the labor are, are 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 black and brown, and you don't think that you should have to pay for their labor because right. this country was built on not paying them for their labor and capitalizing off their yeah. death. So I don't. Can we? If you understand that, why are we still working in these systems? <laughs> if you are so like liberal and you're like Black yeah. Lives Matter, yeah. Black Square posted. Yeah. Why yeah. are you still like accepting this? When you sit down, you know what I will say? When you sit down with your menu at this restaurant and you're asking questions about the shore rib, go ahead and ask them policies about promotion. Ask them policies about discrimination, right? Mm. Ask them po- mm. about policies. Are you guys still doing tip wages? How does the pay compare to your cooks, to the people who are mm. running your dining room? Ask those questions too. Those are also great questions. Those are fantastic questions. They they really are. Right? <laughs> they really are. Um, all right, we get to talk about fun stuff, yeah. and then it's Friday night party, people. Friday night. I just texted a friend. I was like, "Do you want to go get dinner? I'm feeling good right now." 
<laughs> um, all right, here we go. Here we go. You are you have been a New Yorker for mm-hmm. some time now. So I will ask you this question. Go to pizza toppings. What's the fave? Um, I can do a solid margarita. Like, I'm cool with it. Like, let's do it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wood-fired Neapolitan, the yeah, full... Yeah, absolutely. Give me... Yeah. Margarita. I like it. I like it. What is your pet history? Can we talk pet history? Species? Dogs. Names, all dogs, years. all dogs. Um, Pongo, Pongo, great name. Cash Money. How old were you when you had a dog <laughs> named Cash Money? Uh, like eighteen. Okay, okay, yeah. It was a Jack Russell. Absolutely. That makes sense. <laughs> it was a Jack Russell named Cash Money. I love it. Cash Money. Um, uh, <laughs> and uh, Frankie. Frankie. Frankie the last one. Yeah, she was a pit bull. She was amazing. What was your first like wow food memory growing up where you had something different from what you normally had where you it just kind of blew your mind a little bit and you were like, huh? Risotto. Mm. I was on a cruise and like, you know, those like all you can eat all the time you want situations uh-huh. just to like, keep filling you with plates. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, it was a cruise of the Mediterranean. I was in high school and they like brought me this risotto and I, it was a mushroom risotto and I've been addicted ever since like still like that is something like if you have that on a menu mm-hmm. i will grab there's a couple other things octopus beef tartare i'm always gonna order those like a thousand percent but a mushroom risotto can get my attention as well i love mushroom risotto um yeah. we make a lot of it out here in the woods we try to find mushrooms even yeah like good mushrooms uh-huh. absolutely morels mm-hmm. give it to me mm-hmm. <laughs> what is the well i think i kind of know the answer to this but specifically what was a job like growing up maybe even before college major that you thought you would have wanted when you grew up like when you were a little kid oh thought i was gonna be a vet for a while mm. i did i thought i was gonna be a vet i always thought i was gonna be a teacher a lot of the women in my family are teachers so i thought that like that was a thing too like that's what women are supposed to grow up to be mm-hmm um, can I tell you my first job? Yeah. I used to pack the, you know, we watch like a military movie and you see the guys on the ground and they're having, they have the sacks on their back. Mm-hmm. I used to pack those <laughs> when I was like 12. That was my job. It was just like filling bottles of foot powder and batteries and like rolling. You up were paid for this? Like putting my- mm-hmm. So you're saying the American military <laughs> was using child labor. <laughs> calling Fair. it calling it it was like summer jobs like i see it was it. like summer jobs it was summer jobs you know what i mean <laughs> what in the pandemic has been your like fave sort of emergency moment fallback you're just starving and you whipped something together meal the philpies my dad sent me mm. yeah, yeah yeah that over like grits or rice or with that venison sausage mm-hmm. yeah it's it like brings me back to my ancestors every mm. time. Mm. It sounds delicious. You're going to stay at a friend's house for the weekend. What are three cooking tools or an ingredient that you're bringing with you? I'm always going to bring my chef's knife because nobody, if it's a homie, like if it's a homie and they're not a cook, they don't have a sharp knife Mm-mm. at all. Facts. Um, like quit. Um, <laughs> and for that also probably like a good spatula too, because mm. like that, like, grandma plastic 
situation is never my fave. So are we talking rubber spat or metal spat? That's a good question. Uh, metal spat, like a fish spat. Yeah, like but a fish I don't fish like lace. the ones that like V out. I like the the straight ones, you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about? Mm-hmm. Like the, with the square end. The, square end. Like yeah, yeah. Yeah. The fish slice. Real it delicate. seems to be a big one. What is a favorite dish that your grandmother or mom or aunt or some elder woman in your family cooks that is like your favorite? They know it when you come to visit. It's like they know they're going to make that for you or you request it. At this age, I am the person who does all the cooking <laughs> and like the veg prep and everything for everyone. Because uh-huh. they're like, they're getting up there, like all in their 70s now. Mm-hmm. My mom will make a spinach dip that I really love, like with like canned water chestnuts, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like sour cream. And like we eat it like with Hawaiian rolls. And I really do. I still love it to this day. And then my grandma used to make like a really fire coconut pie. Mm. I haven't found anybody who can make it as good as since. Is that like a coconut cream situation? Tell me. No, tell me about the pie. I want to know more I about the pie kinda... than just coconut pie. <laughs> I need more details. The texture was like like a chess pie kind of situation. Mm, okay. Okay. With like coconut like flakes folded in it and then mm. like again on top, you know, really, really good. And then if I have to throw this in there, like a caramel cake, but I need like to know if anybody out there, let me know if you know this experience, like the 17 layer where they do like the really thin layer mm. of cake and then a layer of caramel in between. Oh, my lord, you can only get those at like seven churches. <laughs> that cake. Oh my goodness, that cake. It is life. It sounds amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I might need to go to church. Yeah. <laughs> it's worth it. <laughs> Who's your favorite person to cook for? My family. Yeah. Just like, yeah, my my dad and all his brothers and sisters. I know they're enjoying it, and then also they're going to crack a thousand jokes in between, but I know that they're proud. Mm. Um, and, like, the joy that comes from that table mm. is, it gives life, you know? Yeah. And I, I love it, and they're hilarious, and, like, if I could just, like, keep that going all the time, I totally would. I love that. Are they, like, the hardest critics uh, do you feel like more nervous With cooking for them than anyone else? Well, yeah, for sure, a thousand percent. So it has to be on point, mm-hmm. especially if you're cooking. Like, I wouldn't ever cook for them. Like, I I can make. We do Christmas and we do all those things, and they have taught me how they would like me to prepare those things, like family recipes. And so I know how to do right. Like I know how to do those, and I would never deviate from them. But uh-huh. if I'm just cooking and cooking off the cuff for them, yeah, you know, they're just gonna be laughing at me the entire time, right? Like I had. <laughs> My family came, I used to work at a restaurant upstate, Mm -hmm. super fancy, $300 a plate kind of spot, like before you even talk about beverage, right? And they still crack up about that dinner. Like they lose their minds and they're like, can you believe that they were serving us weeds that we got (laughs) underneath the tree? I think I know where this was and I I get that you don't want to mention it and that's totally fine. You know, I have very strong feelings about this place. I don't know if you know. Um, I don't know. And and its level of bullshittery (laughs) and white supremacy that it Mm. stands on. Um, So it actually is giving me life to hear you say that your parents and family... They crack up about it because, you know, like we have land. They grew up on farms. Mm-hmm. My dad will tell you, mm-hmm. he'd be like, I was 16 before I ever walked to a grocery store. I didn't know what that, like, what that life was about. Like, I didn't know that, like, convenience. Mm-hmm. Like, we ate what we grew. Mm-hmm. 
And so it's they think it's hilarious that there are people in the world who were paying obscene amount of money, like rent money, like mortgage money mm-hmm. on a Wednesday mm-hmm. for this dinner. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they still think it's the biggest joke. They crack up. They're like, girl, I ate my vegetable thins. Why is this carrot so small? <laughs> like, <laughs> Well, it's a fetishization of farming um, yeah. and that whole experience, right? When you, when you think about how hard it is, uh, farm work, which I got to experience this past yeah. year, um, and I know how hard it is working in restaurants, um, yeah. that to imagine, and, you know, I have the privilege, at least in the farm work, of not, like, you know, having to, like, do this for a living, um, like, mm-hmm. not to pay my rent, so I could just, I was... I was working for free, so I could just be like, hey, actually, right. I got to go early today. See you guys. But yeah, to me, when you're working that hard and then you think about people paying that much money to come and have a meal where there's little, yeah, little tiny carrots on a stick and and then being like, oh, look at us. We're so great because we ate at this like farm to table place. And it's just like so they're feeling really good about themselves for spending, you know, three, five hundred dollars for this thing that is just like how it feels so disconnected from the reality of farming and cooking you're very you're very a thousand percent correct like on point like but people themselves are so far right. like so like disconnected from like where their food come from come like they have no idea mm-hmm. like what that labor entails mm-hmm. right yeah. and so this is super cute and a really cute experience you know what i mean like it's just like riding through disneyland <laughs> yeah exactly you know yeah. It's yeah. just like riding through Disneyland. And that's like another one of those places where it's like all these things are horrible. But if you can like stand there and like speak into existence what you want to happen, uh-huh. it'll happen. Well, Mavis J, it's been so nice chatting with you. I know we could chat forever. I would like to believe that we're going to see each other sometime in the near future, which would be amazing. Maybe on your family's. 96 acre farm in georgia let's meet there i want to do that but i would actually really love to cook with you at some point that would be awesome i would really like that as well i really want to yeah yeah. it was really great getting to know a little like some different parts of you that i didn't know before so i learned things about me that i didn't know either thanks there you go Thanks so much to Chef Mavis J for joining me. We will link to them and their work with Drive Change in the show notes. Thanks to all of you for listening. Follow Loading Doc Talks in your favorite podcast app. If you like what you hear, please leave us a positive review or share with a friend. You can find me on Twitter and IG at Chef P Mystery. And a big shout out to our pod and music production team, Copper and Heat. <laughs>